Guys, we are going to welcome you back to your seats so we can begin. Uh, I have the great privilege to welcome our guest speaker. Just a little bit about Professor uh, Joe Holden. Uh, how many of you are in the Wednesday night class? You're coming out Wednesday nights and uh, you're watching the satellite course that we are offering, offering on Wednesday nights. We're going through bibliology. And Joe Holden is a professor teaching in that course. And so he is here today. So those of you who haven't been taking that course get to see him and he's gonna go over um, some of his studies with us. And so uh, he's the, per he's the uh, president of Veritas Seminary, right? Yes. yes, he teaches at Calvary Chapel Bible College as well. And so please join me in welcoming Dr. Joe Holden. Wow, thank you, thanks Carla. Wow, please stay seated. Uh, no need for standing ovation. I am delighted to be back here with you. Um, you. You probably can't believe half the things, those nice things they say about me. I hope the introduction wasn't, uh, isn't gonna be better than my actual message, but thank you, Carlin. I appreciate it. Um, so let me see uh, hands again. How many of you were taking that class? I couldn't rubberneck all the way around. Wow, that's amazing. Now, I hear that you're in the introduction portion. Is that... Is that correct? Okay, so you might come across this lecture later on in the course and, you know, tell me, shoot me a little email, which one was better, this one or that one? And tell me, do they get my good side in the videos? You know, I want to know if they got my good side. Hopefully they do, but it really doesn't matter, does it? It's about the Word of God. And I also want you to know that you were being prayed for when the fires were hitting up here. Ross and I were going back back and forth with email a little bit about the needs and what was happening. I heard that up to 40 homes were, were either damaged or destroyed. I want you to know that we were praying for you daily in our offices and um, we, we really love you. I know that God is going to rebuild and, and reestablish what the canker has eaten and we know that. And it's funny that we're gonna be talking about a lesson in God's preservation of the word. But in a very true sense, isn't, Though we're talking about the preservation of God's word, isn't it God's word that preserves us? I mean, it's just so nice to know that Christ lives in us and that the word of God is in our heart. It's in our mind. And that's what preserves us through all of this. So God is good. He will, he will restore. With that, let's bow in a word of prayer and let's dive into our talk today. Lord, we do thank you. Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for this gathering today. We ask that you would bless us as we talk about your word and the lesson in your preservation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, speak to us. Enrich us with your word, Lord, but also allow us to be confident that you can preserve those things that you have established throughout the centuries, and you can still do it today in our lives. So, Father, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, how many of you have been to Israel? How many of you have been to Qumran? How many of you have seen some of the Dead Sea Scrolls while in Israel, perhaps? Good. That's excellent. How many have been to the Shrine of the Book 
at the Israeli Museum where they're displayed. Many of them are. Okay, excellent. The Dead Sea Scrolls are so powerful for us today because we were being hammered by negative critical scholars about us not knowing whether our English Bible was actually the Word of God. They were hammering us for probably 200 years not knowing because the oldest manuscript we had to reconstruct our Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, was dated to about 1000 AD. It was the Leningrad Codex, the Aleppo Codex. And we were missing from the time Moses started writing, some uh, 1400 or so, 1450 BC, all the way up to 1000 AD, we were missing manuscripts from that time. I mean, that is like 2,400 year span during that time. And they were just hammering away at us. They were, they were killing us saying, we don't know what the original actually said. But that all changed in 1947 when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every book of the Old Testament was found except the book of Esther in 11 caves near the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, some 1,300 feet below sea level. God preserved them in a perfect environment, a dry, perfect, air-conditioned, and you might think, hmm, caves are air-conditioned? Museums try to replicate the caves in which these scrolls are found. The perfect humidity, the perfect you know, amount of shade and so forth. God had them put those scrolls in those caves and they were preserved just like a perfect museum quality temperature all the way through. So it's amazing. This is what I wanna to talk to you about today and it's a lesson of God's preservation of his word. Let's get right into it. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35. He said, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. That rings true with the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Despots tried to burn the Bible. They tried to ban the Bible. They tried to uh, edit the Bible. But the Bible is still here in its, in its original form. John 10, 35, Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. That means it cannot fail. It doesn't even have the potential for failure. It's infallible. This is the doctrine of infallibility here. It will never fail in content or in the scripture itself. Now, many of you are probably familiar with Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. Now, those are the two words that describe God. He's alive, he is being, and he's active. He's working in his creation. The word has many different characteristics that are similar to God. In fact, the word is eternal. God is eternal. The word never changes. God never changes. The word is infinite because it came from an infinite mind. God is infinite. Timothy, when Paul said all scripture is inspired by God, it means that the scripture has a divine nature to it because it's the breath of God. It's the mind of God. God, Jesus Christ, has a divine nature. It has a human nature as well because it was written out by human beings, apostles and men. So, he is alive and it's active and sharper than any two-edged swords. It can slice and dice. It can encourage and it can tear you down. It can get too prideful. It can slice you down to size. Piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner or a critic, literally, in the Greek text, critic of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God is alive and when you read it, it's actually reading you. That's what it does, because it's alive. 
Shakespeare doesn't read you. Plato doesn't read you. Aristotle doesn't read you. Your favorite novel or poem doesn't read you. But this book reads you. It has that canny ability to put its finger right on the issue. It, it scratches you where you need it, so to speak. So the word of God, it's alive. I love what William F. Albright, the American archeologist, what he said about the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1948. He said, I repeat that in my opinion, you have made the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. Certainly the greatest biblical manuscript find. What an incredible find. It's interesting, the date there, you notice that? When did Israel get back their nation? 1948. The scrolls were discovered one year earlier in 1947. It's interesting, it's as if God knew that the Jews would get their nation back, Israel, but it wouldn't only be their nation, it would be their scriptures too. Every book of the Old Testament was found except Esther. And I think there's a reason for that that we might touch on a bit later. What an amazing find. Where were the scrolls find, found? Well, here's a map of Israel, Egypt, and Jordan. And you can see the relationship uh, between the two, Qumran is right on the northwest shores of the Dead Sea. That little body of water is 1,300 feet below sea level, and Qumran with the red dot there is where these scrolls were found in those limestone caves. So, notice Jerusalem, just a short distance, 15 to 20 miles northwest of Qumran, so close, so close to Jerusalem itself. The Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient manuscripts that were discovered in 1947 in 11 caves among the limestone cliffs of Qumran overlooking the Dead Sea. Now you see the picture to the right. You can see those little holes in those limestone caves there. Those are caves that contained scripture scrolls. Now all the caves aren't located here. Some of them are located back up in the craggy mountains and so forth. But Cave 4 uh, and some others are right there. The scrolls were discovered by a young Arab shepherd boy, Muhammad Adib, as he searched for his lost goat. So the story goes. Now this Bedouin boy in the 1940s was throwing rocks through a cave window and he heard a cracking of a jar. He ends up climbing into that window, into this cave and finds a half a dozen jars stuffed, stuffed with scrolls and manuscripts, including a full length document of Isaiah. Can you believe that? A full length document of Isaiah he ended up bringing many of these back to his Bedouin uh, village. They hung them out on their uh, tents for weeks, wondering what to do with them. They decided to cash it in for some cash. So they contemplating tearing the manuscript up into pieces so they get more money for the total manuscript when you bring it in in pieces. Another Bedouin actually offered to make shoes out of them because they're written on cowhide. There would be leather. Those would be the most expensive leather shoes you could possibly imagine but they would definitely be walking in the word, wouldn't they? They would be definitely walking in the word without even knowing it, right? But thank God they didn't do that, okay? They took it to uh, Bethlehem where an antiquities dealer would end up um, selling them on the market. But later, after the discovery, and after it hit all the news wires, this man, Pierre Roland DeVoe, he was a Dominican monk who excavated the Qumran area where these scrolls were found from 1951 to 1956. He's the one who put forth the theory that the Essenes lived at Qumran. 
Now, the Essenes were a monastic, separatist, uh, Jewish group of men that left Jerusalem because of the corruption within the priesthood, and they attempted to start this village out in the desert by themselves to prepare themselves for the great battle, the great battle of the end of days. And so they went out there, and they built a small community of about 250 people, and the structural remains were fascinating, and this is kind of a bird's-eye view of Qumran, very small little, little village of about 200 people could live there, but they found a scriptorium there at the bottom of the page near the massive tower. They had cisterns, they had aqueducts. Water was rare there, so they had to channel what little water they had into the right, uh, the right areas. They had ritual baths, they had pottery kilns, and then up at the top right, you see the caves up at the top right. It was their library. Those caves were hollowed out they were, uh, had little niches so they could insert little scrolls into those caves. So it was just an amazing, amazing find. Uh, about 250 BC to 68 AD was the length of this Qumran community. And then they found aqueducts and cisterns and ritual baths there. That's a closer look at cave four where over 40,000 manuscripts were found in that one cave alone across from the community. Just an amazing find. Now back to the story. The Bedouins finally took the manuscripts that they found from that first cave and took it to a man named Kondo. That's who, he looks a little shifty, huh? He's kind of like looking around. <laughs> well, he was an antiquities dealer in Bethlehem and he purchased those scrolls from the Bedouin. And then soon after, a man named E.L. Sukunik, he was a professor at Hebrew University, went to Kondo and he acquired three of the scrolls from Kondo. But in 1949, the remaining four scrolls were sold to Mar Athanasius Samuel of the Syrian Jacobite Monastery in Jerusalem. Well, Mar Athanasius Samuel traveled to America and promptly, on June 1st, 1954, he put the Dead Sea Scrolls in a classified ad in the Wall Street Journal. It said, four Dead Sea Scrolls for sale. It was right next to the washing machines and the refrigerators you know, and all the, the, the yard appliances and so forth, and all of a sudden you see this. He offered them for $250,000. $250,000? For four of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Wow. Well, that caught the attention of a group. Uh, Yagel Yadin, a former general in the Israeli army, his father was named E.L. Sukhanik, who bought the first three, found out about this ad. He travels to America with the help of D.S. Gotsman, a philanthropist who provided some of the cash to purchase the other four documents. And then ultimately, they paid $250,000 <clears> for these documents, these four scrolls. They were returned to Israel to put with the other three his father already purchased. So they now they have a total of seven Dead Sea Scrolls, including, including the full Isaiah scroll. And so this prompted them to build what you call the shrine of the book. The shrine of the book. See this interesting looking building in the architecture? It's like a, like a cone almost. Well, that is in the shape of the lid of the jars in which those scrolls were found. And that's why it's designed that way. Because there's a replica on the left of the kind of jars that were found with the scrolls in it. They were tall and cylindrical. They're very unique jars. 
And ultimately, that's where they are housed today, the ones that Israel has. Jordan has a few of them as well that we'll talk about. But if you go to the Shrine of the Book at the Israel Museum, you can see the Isaiah A scroll, the full-length scroll, and Isaiah B scroll, two scrolls, Habakkuk commentary, a Thanksgiving scroll, community rule, war rule, and the Genesis Apocryphon. So there wasn't just biblical text found in those caves. There were all kinds of different literature found with them. But today, they have seven of these scrolls. Now, what was found? Overall, 11 caves yielded over 900 biblical and non-biblical texts. 900 biblical and non-biblical texts. 220 of these texts were of the scripture. Now, if you add in all the fragments and the partial copies and so forth, you'd have tens of thousands of manuscripts there. Okay, so there was quite a find. The scrolls are written in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek and dated from 250 BC to 68 AD. Of these texts, over 400 are apocryphal and pseudepigraphal. Those are groups of literature that were written during the intertestamental time from 400 BC at the end of the Old Testament at the end of Malachi, all that time from that time to the time of Christ, that's when the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha were written, right in that 400 silent years, if you would. Those weren't biblical texts, but they are helpful to understand what the Jews were thinking during that time. Over 200 texts pertaining to the Qumran sect. So different rules and the monastic order and Thanksgiving scrolls and so forth were also found next to the biblical texts. What artifacts were found? Well, we found stone benches. See these stone benches on the left? We're in the bottom right picture, the scriptorium. And those long stone tables and benches are like library tables. There they could roll out the scrolls, they could write and copy new scrolls and such. So it seems to be consistent with the scrolls we found nearby. That blurry picture there to the right is an inkwell. There's dozens and dozens of inkwells that were found in the excavations there at Qumran. So it lends itself to the belief that this was a copying and transmission center down by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now there's other theories that can go back and forth about what the Qumran community actually did there, but we do know, uh, which is the best theory at the now currently, is that they were the Essenes, a group of monastic Jewish scribes and um, religious people there. Now, let's go through a few of the caves. I'll give you a quick summary of, of what the caves yielded. Cave one is where we found a full-length book of Isaiah. Also, we found in that cave a second book of Isaiah, which was incomplete. We found a Habakkuk commentary. They seemed to really like the book of Habakkuk, so we found different literature and writings on the book of Habakkuk, the commentary explaining verses and so forth. There was various non-biblical books, such as the Thanksgiving Scroll and the Manual of Discipline for the community there. Fragments of Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Judges, Samuel, Ezekiel, Psalms, Daniel 2, 4, where the Hebrew language changes us to Aramaic. You know that Daniel was written in both Aramaic and Hebrew originally, correct? The same book, the one book. It would go to 2, 4, Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, it would be to Hebrew. Then at 2.4, 2.5, it would change to Aramaic. And then it would go back again to Hebrew toward the end of the book. Well, they found where this was actually change occurred. They found the piece of text 
that was in fragment form in that first cave. Uh, quite an amazing find. Isaiah A is on display at the Shrine of the Book in Israel. This is a picture of the Isaiah scroll, a perfect scroll. It's unrolled to Isaiah 38 to 40 right now. You can see the stitching down the left-hand side of the, the document. This is called 1Q ISAA. So first cave, the one stands for cave one. ISA stands for Isaiah and A because there was another one that was found. Uh, the Q just means Qumran. First cave at Qumran, Isaiah, first one found, A. Was written in Hebrew on parchment, animal skin, dated to 125 BC and is approximately 26 feet long when it's unrolled. Now, when you go out to the lobby and you see the manuscript that I brought today, when you unroll that, it's 106 feet long. 106 feet. It dates to 1500 uh, AD. It was written at the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation. It was written in Germany. Now think about that. If that scroll out there was written in Germany by German Jewish scribes around 1500s, that means it survived World War I in Germany, World War II in Germany, the Holocaust in Germany, and then it was shipped over to the Netherlands so the Dutch scribes helped repair it and, and uh, correct it and so forth and put patches on it. Um, and then it made its way to Israel and ultimately an American donor purchased it and then donated it to our university. It was just an amazing, we use it in our bibliology courses, we use it in our Hebrew classes, we send our students on treasure hunts, they have a list of things to find on the manuscript and they go through it. And each one of those panels are about two and a half feet wide and they were sewn together by cow tendon originally. Cow tendon sewed those panels together because tendon is really strong, it's like a strong plastic uh, fiber and it was just an amazing thing. But this Isaiah scroll is the most complete document in its entirety that we ever found in the Dead Sea. Just an amazing and priceless document. And just think they got the other four for only 250,000. These are priceless, ultimately. Amazing, amazing document, Cave One. Cave Two was not as productive when it was excavated in 1952. But hundreds of fragments were discovered, two fragments of Exodus, one of Leviticus, four of Numbers, two of Deuteronomy, one of Jeremiah, Job, and Psalms, one each of them, and then two of the Book of Ruth. So Cave 2 was very uh, productive, but Cave 1 had the mother load, so to speak. Then in Cave 3, look at this shiny-looking manuscript. Isn't that amazing? That's called a copper scroll. Copper scroll. And on it was a text that listed 60-plus sites of buried treasure. Now, they went back to all those sites. They followed the directions, but there was no treasure there. Maybe they went back and picked it up after the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and so forth. Um, no treasure has been found. It was so fragile to unroll because it was rolled up like a scroll, you know, like a burrito. And you have copper rolled up. It was starting to oxidize and, and so forth. They tried to roll, unroll it at the museum, and it started breaking and, and, and just cracking and so forth. So what they did was they x-rayed the scroll intact to see what was on it on the inside, and then they cut it in strips of about five inches long. And you see the bottom right? Those are the strips that they cut to unroll it. 
And one of the strips were flattened out and polished, and that's the one that you see in the upper right there. Looks really, really neat. Written in Hebrew, but that's called the Copper Scroll. Though it doesn't have any biblical significance, it was found in Cave 3, and it's housed in Jordan, uh, Israel, because during the time where they found at Qumran, that was all Jordanian territory at the time. So Jordan has some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Cave 4, now this was a great... Uh, cache of manuscripts here. This was amazing. Cave 4 produced 100 biblical books. This is the cave that was right across from the community I showed you earlier in the limestone cliffs. This was what they made into their library with the niches. If you look closely, you can kind of see little holes and niches where they could put their scrolls. They found Genesis, Daniel 7.28 to 8.1 where the Aramaic chains back to Hebrew again. Commentaries on the Psalms, Isaiah and Nahum. And then when they dusted and examined the entire cave, there was a big boulder at the far end of the cave where the arrow is pointing. Big boulder. They decided to move it out because they found one little fragment sticking out from the side of the boulder on the floor. They pulled it out and they found 40,000 more fragments underneath the boulder in that hole right there. So cave four was very productive. Cave one was very productive. And the rest is history. Within cave four, that same cave I just showed you, they found this document. And this has great Christological and biblical significance. It's called the Messianic Testimony. This is a collection, first century BC, a Hebrew manuscript that lists all the Old Testament passages that refer to the coming of the Messiah. And all of these passages, they did a very good job because all of them do point to the Messiah. But unfortunately, the people at Qumran thought that there would be two or even three Messiahs coming because no one person can be a prophet, priest, and a king. Okay, remember in the year that King Uzziah died? Isaiah chapter six, why did he die? He was a king who tried to do the function of a priest. Yeah, he tried to go in and burn incense. God struck him with leprosy, and ultimately he died. So what Uzziah could not do, the Messiah could do in that chapter. But the Messiah would come. So all three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, would be wrapped up in one person, Jesus Christ, when he comes. And so this is a fantastic uh, document we know by the first century B.C., and that's before Christ came by about 100 years that people should have been looking for the Messiah and Jesus fulfilled those verses in their eyes, right in their sight, right before them, but they missed it. Just an amazing document indeed. Scrolls of uh, Cave 5 and 6. Cave 5 had produced fragments of up to 50 biblical and non-biblical texts. Cave 6 yielded fragments like Genesis, Exodus, Daniel, Deuteronomy, and Ecclesiastes. Cave 7 and 10 through 10. Cave 7 unearthed Greek fragments, which may be the earliest portions of nine New Testament books. Now, when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, we often think of the Old Testament books, don't we? We think of Genesis through Malachi. But they don't talk much about the Greek manuscripts that were found there. Professor Jose O'Callaghan from the University of Barcelona in Spain actually analyzed these handful of little tiny manuscripts that were fragments that were about as big as a half dollar. 
And he found that those little Greek manuscripts refer to portions of the Gospel of Mark. That is amazing because they date them by about 60 AD. But you don't hear much about this because the negative critical scholars you know, try to quash and try to give an alternate explanation. So the, the research never really got traction. But if those documents refer to pre-70 AD writing of the Gospels, that means that the negative critics have to revise all their books or have a book burning party, one of the two. Either one is fine with me. They would have to revise their dates because they try to put the Gospels where? Way out past the end of the first century, into the second century. Why? Because that way, nobody who was an eyewitness could have written those Gospels. You see... And they get around the 70 AD prophecy in Matthew 24 that every stone upon Temple Mount would be destroyed and thrown down. See, they don't believe in the supernatural, so they have to put it after 70 AD. Now, there's one gospel that did. You know, John was written in the last part of the first century. But the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were all written prior to 70 AD, and these Dead Sea Scrolls in the Greek text, O'Callaghan provided the translation of them and a text where they belong. And if that's the case, those little fragments date to about 60, some in the late 50s. That means they'd have to revise their whole dating structure, and it would completely crumble. No wonder why they came and attacked it with vehemence. Cave 8 contained fragments of Genesis in the Psalms. Cave 9 and 10 was unproductive, yielding only a single ostraca. Now, an ostraca is a little piece of pottery with some writing on it. That's a broken shirt and has a little writing scribbled on it. Uh, they also found a leather materials used for storing and bundling scrolls as well. Um, there is still excavations going on at Qumran today. They were digging up their cemetery. They found that the cemetery contained bo bones of... Uh, almost all men, uh, that seems to be consistent with a monastic order that lived there, the Essenes. But they did dig up a few uh, female graves, but the bones were uh, disarticulated. In other words, they were separated and they just were buried kind of in a pile. So it appears that they reinterred those bones at Qumran. They didn't actually die there. They probably took them from another site and then reburied them there, maybe a family member of some sort. So... Um, the excavations continue. Uh, Randall Price has, uh, is continuing to search for more caves with more uh, documents within them. And we'll see what he ends up uh, bringing forth, but nothing as of yet. So cave 11. <clears throat> cave 11. In 1956, a partial copy of Leviticus and the Aramaic Targum of Job was found. Now, an Aramaic targum just means like it's a, it's a loose interpretation of Job, whenever they say that. Partial copies of Psalms that are pictured above here, including a 151st Psalm. <laughs> How many Psalms do you have? 50. They found what they call a 151st Psalm, uh, but it doesn't seem to make uh, the cut to be added to your Bible. Scholars now possess nearly 40 canonical psalms ranging from Psalms 90 to 150. Two of the three non-biblical temple scrolls, the longest measuring nearly 28 feet. So Cave 11 gave us some interpretations, some commentary, 
uh, a, a purported psalm that was written. Remember, there was many more than 150 psalms written, but the Lord saw in his providence to just put 150 within the biblical text. Same with the songs of Solomon. Many were written, but only one made it in. Now, this is where we come to the punchline of all this information I'm giving you. Where are we going? Remember I said it was a lesson in God's preservation of the word. Now, this is where it comes to pass that all of our documents of the Old Testament were found here, except the book of Esther. Now, if I asked you, why wasn't the book of Esther found? If God is in his providence was giving them back the word, why might, maybe God was thinking something. I don't want to propose to think what God was thinking, but I, I can't help but to think and to, to, to speculate a little bit here, and that's all it is, is speculation. If you were giving back a whole book and there was a chapter missing, what would you ask? Where's the book of Esther? What's Esther doing? Now, if Esther was included, do you think that you'd look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and say, hey, I like the book of Esther? I don't think so. You'd be looking at Isaiah and Genesis and so forth. But it's interesting, maybe God just in his providential care said, you know what? I'm gonna leave the book of Esther out. Not that it's, he's trying to say it's not the word of God. And I know that the word of God is not mentioned. His name is not mentioned in the book, though many Hebrew scholars say it's written in acrostic form in the Hebrew underneath the text, like an abbreviation, Y-H-W-H, yad Hey vav Hey, or Yahweh. But what is the story of Esther about? It's about the preservation of God's people in Persia. They were about ready to be wiped out, weren't they? Exterminated. Genocidal extermination was about to happen on the gallows in Persia. But God was working behind the scenes to preserve his people through a queen and a king. He ends up preserving his people through bringing forth this this queen to help advocate for the Jews. It's interesting that Israel will one day in the future be in the same position, the tribulation period. They're gonna face their darkest hour yet, and they're gonna wonder, where is God? He's missing. And they're gonna find out that it's going to be God in the end. Jesus Christ will return and he will preserve his people much like he did in the book of Esther. So it may be that God is trying to tell the people of Israel that there's gonna be a day like Esther coming again. And I will be there for you, even though you probably will be wondering where I am, I will be working on your behalf. And then they get their nation one year later. Interesting. The timing, I, I, there's no coincidence in God's timing and the discovery of documents when people get their nation back and so forth. But as I said before, there was 1,300 years from the end of the Old Testament to the start of the New Testament in the first century. Okay, Malachi ended about 400 AD. New Testament started maybe in the 50s. Okay, 40s, 50s AD. So you have 1,300 BC, to the first century AD, you have a 1300 year period, almost 1400 years, and there was no manuscripts that us modern people could look at to reconstruct 
our English New Testament with, or our Old Testament, excuse me, our Old Testament. Then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what do you think happened after that? Just amazing. Just amazing. Okay, notice the Aleppo Codex that first came on the screen. That was our oldest Old Testament manuscript and it dated to 900 AD, written in Hebrew. It's called the Masoretic Text, the family of the Masorites, uh, the Masorah, the tradition, copied that. And then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that date back to the second century BC. Notice that it closed the gap. Remember we had 1300 year gap between the end of the Old Testament now, we have scrolls that go back to the second century BC, only 200 to 250 years removed from the end of the Old Testament. And what do you think they found? 95% the text was identical to the later Masoretic text that we had about 900 to 1000 AD. That gives us confidence that what we are reading in our English Bibles today was the same thing that came from the author's hand when it was originally penned. That's the great lesson of God's preservation of his word over all this time. Think about it, you can open this book with complete confidence. And you might be saying, well, there's still 5% that's different, Joe. I didn't forget about that. You know what the differences are? Spelling mistakes. Word order reversals. You know, um, writing twice would have should have been written once, or writing once which should have been written twice. Do you know that all the scholars, when they first found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they got all these scholars in a room. Let's say you're all scholars out there. They had all these tables set up with fragments. And your job was to go translate the documents, the biblical text. And so all of you would go to your tables and you would begin employing your translation process. How long do you think it took before those scholars in their translation process started to quit? Why would they quit? Tedious. Okay, what else? Disappointed, why would they be disappointed? This is just like copying our English Bible. <laughs> so many of them quit and left and they had to get more people to fill their spots because it was so redundant. It was the exact same text that you have today. They thought they were gonna find some juicy contradictions and discrepancies and, and certainly there's enough, you know, uh, word differences and so forth that it kept some of them interested. But ultimately, it was so boring to look at these fascinating Dead Sea Scrolls. Ultimately, it was the same Bible. That tells you many things about the copying process. We call that transmission, the copying process. They were copying texts over and over and over again with such fanatic zeal. And thank God they were fanatics when it came to their scripture and their language. 
because they copied exactly what was before them to copy. Now, there are no two manuscripts that are identical. There are some minor differences, but no differences that would change any major doctrine or content or meaning of the text. We're talking just little, little slips of the pen. You remember scribes get tired copying. Their, their eyesight could be failing. You know, they probably have a candle burning and they have their little turkey feather. You know, <laughs> how would you get to copy something based on that? But they were professionals. They took their jobs seriously. If they were writing the name of God and a king came into the room and say, I want to talk to you, the scribe would just say, talk to the hand. I can't address you at this point. I'm finishing the name of God. Then he puts down his pen and he talk to the king. But they were fanatic about this. And thank God for our sake that God's providential care over his word was so fine-tuned and so great that we can with confidence now respond to the negative critics and say, show me the differences between the manuscripts that date very early in the BC times to our modern day Bible. Well, has your Bible changed at all since 1947? No. <laughs> Sometimes they put little, little asterisks or a little footnote there to say, well, some of the manuscripts say this, some of them say, yeah. But the content is the same. It's the same voice that God spoke in the beginning and that human beings put on paper and was transmitted through the centuries. Just, just amazing. Now, I want to, I don't know if I can find this, but I want to go to, let's see here. Is that going to work? No. Bear with me for just a second. I want to take you back. Where is it? Where is it? I think this here. I want to show you the oldest. Do you guys want to see the oldest scripture that we have today? And it's 300 years older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, if I can find it. I, don't, I showed it to Carlin earlier. Carlin, where is that? <laughs> don't have it. <laughs> I have it on display out front there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to give it one more shot here, but I can just describe it to you, but I wanted you to see it. Um, this is a piece of scripture that was found in southern Jerusalem. And it was quite an amazing find because it was on the last day of the dig and so forth. I don't know where it went. I am so sorry. But um, anyway, it was just fantastic. It was just fantastic. Oh, it left. What happened? Oh, I got to hit this first, right? Did that come back? Okay. So the little piece I'm talking about is a piece of silver about four inches tall and about one inch wide. It's called the Ketif Hinnom Silver Scroll. And they found two of them. They, they were rolled up like little, little cigarette butts, little, little burrito, little cigarette butt things. And they found them at the last day of the dig in southern Jerusalem in a cave tomb complex among bones and so forth. And they found out these were little amulets they would wear around their arm or around the neck. Um, and they had scripture written on them. And the two that they found were amazing because it took them up to three years to be able to open them. 
because they were just they would just crumble. So Israel finally found a solution or a way to unroll them without just totally destroying them. They x-rayed them as well. They unrolled them, and lo and behold, they cleaned them up, and this little strip of silver had the Leviticus or the Aaronic benediction, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. May the Lord shine his face upon thee and give thee peace, was written there. It dates to 600 B.C., and it's the exact same verse that's written in your scripture. I mean, we're talking before the Babylonian captivity, there was something that was found. It gives you this unbroken chain of transmission of the scriptures from 600 B.C. to the third, second and third century B.C. for the Dead Sea Scrolls, throughout our modern times up until about 1500 or so when the printing press was invented, manuscripts, handwritten copies of scriptures that had been circulating throughout. Your Bible is the word of God. It has the voice of God. And when you read it, it reads you and is a testimony of God's preservation of the things that he inspires. And the fact that you have this in your mind and your heart means God is gonna preserve you through his word and through his son. Amen? Whatever you've lost, whatever you think you're going through, God can meet the need. His son is still alive and praying for you on the throne. He will restore, he will provide, he will preserve all the way through. Now, I brought a little um, token of, for you to look at. It's, it's a manuscript, it's a Hebrew manuscript out in the lobby, uh, and they mentioned it earlier. It's called the Veritas Torah Manuscript. It dates to the early 1500s AD. And it's a copy of the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, it's interesting because it was penned in Germany. And as I said before, it survived many uh, tumultuous times in Germany. Made its way to the Netherlands where Dutch scribes patched and corrected and so forth. Then made its way to Israel and to our uh, Veritas International University. But rolled out, it's 106 feet long. It's written in the Hebrew language. And I know they said don't touch it, but this scroll you can actually touch. You can take pictures of it. You can touch it. You can feel the leather. Just try not to touch the print, the font uh, that's written there. And, you know, think about how God preserves it and how he preserves you, too. The word preserves us, ultimately. But this scroll is amazing piece, tied together with cow sinew or tendon, and it's just a fascinating example of what God's providential care over his word ultimately can do. So, you know, take your time if you'd like. Um, it's, a, it's a marvelous piece of history, and just think about Jesus as the word of God too, right? Remember, there's the word of God in the book, but there's also a word of God in the body, Amen. and that's Jesus Christ, right? The book is without error, Jesus Christ is without sin. The book has a divine nature because it was inspired by God. It's his breath, it's his voice, it's his mind. The living word, Jesus, his son, has a divine nature. It's a human book, humans wrote, okay? But also Christ has a human nature. He's the theanthropic God-man, the theanthropic book, ultimately. Is the eternal word of God, Christ is eternal and unchanging, and so is his word unchanging. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever, speaking of his divine nature. He does not change, and he is fully eternal. 
You know, it's amazing correlations. This is called the Word of God, John 1, 1. Jesus is called what? The Word of God, the Logos. John 1, 14, and the Logos, or the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. So the next time you think of the Word, think of Christ. When you think of Christ, think of his great Word. They both have a relationship that is just amazing and unique. I'll tell you what, guys, Muhammad is still in his grave. George Washington is still in his grave. The only one's tomb that's empty is Jesus Christ, the only one, okay? He is risen, and he loves us. That's what's so great about this whole thing. The God that inspired the book, he actually knows you and loves you. That's, that's the big thing here. This blows me away. You, what? Me? Right? Yeah, I don't deserve this. We're not worthy, but we'll take it, right? Okay. Let's bow in a word of prayer, and we'll dismiss Dear Lord, we again thank you for your testimony you've left us. Thank you for the words that you've penned on paper that we can read over and over again and share with others. And and you gave us your redemptive plan. You told us about your son. You are preserving us through the word and your word reads us as we read it. Lord, what a unique gift you've given us through your son and the word. Lord, as we think about what was said today about your lesson in preservation, we ask that you give us a newfound confidence in the scriptures we read and that many lives were lost preserving this word, protecting the word, spreading the word, and that the respect is due to what you've done. Lord, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for preserving it because we would be nowhere if we lost your voice, Lord. Father, thank you, and let us richly dwell in the word with you. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.